So, uh, Stephen, here's a question for you. Of the various social media and computing giants, one of which you work for, which one will be the ultimate victor in the future corporation wars? Uh, my money's on Amazon, actually. They're doing very well. They they have Microsoft be on the cloud computing um, scale, although Microsoft is somewhat catching up. They still have – they're still ahead. They also have been able to escape a lot of the ne- negative press attention that Facebook and Google have been getting. They, they've been getting some negative press, but not as much. Positive press to uh, recruit volunteers for the uh, Amazon Prime Cyborg Initiative, where you get free Amazon Prime. Also the Amazon Prime Army. Mm-hmm. Get your uh, Gatling gun with two-day shipping, guaranteed. <laughs> Precisely. Death delivered to your door in two days. Maybe even two hours if you really upgrade. Prime now. It's both a drone delivery service and also hunter killers. It's good. Yes, exactly. All right. And my thought is that we'll cue the music there. Really, that music is great. I'm very happy that it's a, it's a solid set piece mm-hmm. yeah all right <clears throat> here we go hello everyone and welcome to yet another episode of the problem with reading i have with me steven hi everyone and myself revan and we are two individual humans existing in this uh quantum void and we are we, definitely humans we are humans believe us uh, uh we have feelings and thoughts um emotions I arms and legs me, Mm-hmm. Give me any input, and I will guarantee you a human-like output. And isn't that all we can do to prove that we're human? Mm-hmm. Believe us. I'm not Chinese box. Is it Searles? Searles? Chinese box? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. The, yeah, the the Chinese box where you put in one symbol and the dictionary definition is made and translated and put back through, but you don't know if it's an actual person or not. Well, well I thought the point of Searles box was uh, arguing that computers will never understand the content of uh, information that yeah, if it's all just input output um they go through a complicated s- series of if then statements um to translate one symbol to another symbol and then trans or and then send a response back or, or what have you um what would you yeah, say that, is it is it response without content or content without meaning probably the second uh, i would say content and meaning in this case are kind of synonymous so i'd say it's response without content okay. um or at that point, you're kind of playing a semantics game. In essence, it's this thing is delivering or is responding to a symbol in a way that appears to be meaningful, but is not actually meaningful. Uh, I would say it's a corollary of the uh, the philosopher's zombie. You know, the the thing that looks and acts like a human, but actually has no internal uh, consciousness or what have you. Ah, uh, the eternal zombie problem. Well, you know, when there is the inevitable zombie apocalypse, uh, I know what I'm going to be doing. I'm going to be having a nice drink, something or other. Uh, speaking of that, uh, Stephen, what are... What are you drinking right now? With transition, I am drinking uh, a cup of black coffee uh, taken from the lovely land of Guatemala. My aunt and uncle mm. gave me uh, a, a pack of coffee for Christmas uh, that goes uh, towards charitable donation or a charitable cause. Truth be told, I forget which one, but I was very touched by it. And this coffee is delicious. So uh, if you're listening, uh, Uncle Ryan and Aunt Crystal, thank you very much. Very nice. Uh, as for myself right now, I am uh, enjoying some nice Boston tap water. Uh, it tastes like uh, the Irish and violent sports games. Um, but what I will be drinking after this podcast, which I'm very excited about, is a uh, Kentucky Mule. Um, Sam actually gave us some nice copper mugs, and I have some fresh limes and lime juice. And I'm going to put a wedge of that into this specialty ginger beer that my wife found that's made for mixing. It's less sweet and more spicy. And I'll just put that in with some Evan Williams bourbon, um, and I will be in a good spot. That's to come. That so like good stuff. we need to get this over as soon as possible. We'll rush and through. do that. Though I, I, I am curious, what does the copper actually do? Is it more of an aesthetic thing or is there like an actual functional purpose to it being a copper cup? So I don't know if you knew this, uh, but copper actually promotes positive vibrations um, from deep in the core of the center of the earth, much as essential oils are channel, if you will, the uh, spirits of our ancestors. Uh, so copper mugs channel the spirit of mother gaia uh all praise be upon her and help us to feel more and more at one with the earth and actually if you 
managed to frost up the sides by putting in a sufficient num- amount of ice, you know, crushed ice and such, and with mint leaves, you truly begin to merge with the one consciousness uh, more than you would with, for example, a, a mug or a normal glass. Uh, plastic, obviously, gives you negative vibrations, and which is why our generation is so depressed. Um, it's the negative vibrations from plastic. Now, if I have my set of crystals next to me with, like, on my left with my essential oils on the right, does that mm-hmm. like, help things? Are your crystals primarily quartz or pink rock salt? Shoot, man, they're pink rock salt. Is that okay? Oh, um, uh, I would get your chakras checked out as quickly as possible. That that sounds pretty dangerous to me. Great. Yeah, I, I, I've got some phone calls to make then. All right. Well, before you do that, let's first look at Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue, Chapter 8, with the lovely title, quote, The Character of Generalizations in Social Science and Their Lack of Predictive Power. You open strong. So chapter eight takes social sciences to task for their claim to embody expertise, uh, which is the power to predict and manipulate the behavior of others. And it takes them to task by arguing that the basis of confidence in expertise, which is a stock of law-like generalizations with strong predictive power, doesn't actually exist. Essentially, social sciences form the base of a stock of knowledge that claims to have predictive power akin to the natural sciences that it doesn't actually have, and thus expertise is unjustified, and the civilization that's been built around it is equally so. And it is in the vested interests of so, of the social sciences to claim to have this power. If they don't, then there's no reason to employ them as experts in the government or in the private sector. So they will always be making very strong arguments for their continued existence, because that is the basis of all of their knowledge, that they can imitate the natural sciences and create laws of uh, human and social behavior that have predictive power and allow people in various positions to manipulate society to different ends. And McIntyre attacks this by discussing four examples of law-like generalizations in social science, ones recent to his time, but I could easily, or someone else could easily, provide a list of modern generalizations in terms of you know economic development, or does intervention work, or what do you need for a successful uh, tax market? He mentions the Phillips curve etc. There are all these different laws that exist, laws quote-unquote, in the social sciences, and they're all very well researched and they're confirmed by many different instances of them being correct, but all of them actually share several characteristics which is revealing to their true character, which is much less than is claimed by their supporters. First, each of the generalizations are refuted by a number of counterexamples. Second, each lacks universal quantifiers and scope modifiers so that, quote, we cannot say of them in any precise way under what conditions they hold, end quote. In other words, it's the paradox of theories where the more specific a theory is, the more accurate it is, but the less it is useful under various circumstances because any given set of conditions only exists once if you get really, really specific about it. And fourth, each of these examples lacks counterfactual conditions so that we don't actually know how to apply them beyond the instances from which they were derived. And these are well-considered laws in McIntyre's day, and there are any number of modern examples of this that we could list. But the reason that they have these inherent problems is because the social sciences, unlike natural sciences, have no standards of predictive power, and the claimed predictive powers of social sciences are not increasing with time, because they're of an entirely different characteristic. In predicting the natural world or movement of particles in physics, biology, etc., all of this has improved with time, but it hasn't with the social sciences, and it's because they're of entirely different nature. And the problem with the social sciences is that it often makes the mistake of thinking that explaining how something happened in hindsight is the same thing as developing a law of predicting it in the future and avoiding future unpredictable things, which is simply patently false for four reasons. So then McIntyre goes into four areas of systematic unpredictability in human affairs that ultimately renders the claim of expertise of the social sciences bunk. The first of these systematic unpredictabilities is radical concept innovation. Now, this is the idea that certain events and observations can be explained in retrospect, but inherently can only be predicted, quote unquote, when the innovation has already occurred. And he gives an example. So say you go back in time to the caveman era and know that in 10 years, the wheel will be invented and you tell your caveman buddy, hey, guess what? In 10 years, the wheel will be invented. But the fact is you just invented the wheel right then 
and you're no longer predicting its invention. You can't predict radically new concepts. It's impossible by definition. And we know from history that radically new concepts are constantly appearing or being developed. So the conclusion ultimately has to be that explaining concepts in retrospect, radical new ones, does not inoculate yourself from being surprised by unpredictable new ones that will appear. Things can be both simultaneously unpredictable and explicable post hoc. And that's a mistake that the social sciences often can't wrestle with. The second cause of systematic unpredictability is, I think, the least compelling or particularly relevant to the social sciences, but it does have some interesting points. Essentially, it's about individual actors and the unpredictability of your own future behavior and how that interacts with other individuals and them not being able to predict their future behavior, but then being able to hypothetically predict your behavior. And basically, it creates this unknowing mass of intersecting decision trees that it extends into eternity. But there is one good quote, which is that, quote, Omniscience excludes the making of decisions. If God knows everything that will occur, he confronts no as yet unmade decision. It is precisely insofar as we differ from God that unpredictability invades our lives. This way of putting the point has one particular merit. It suggests precisely what project those who seek to eliminate unpredictability from the social world or to deny it may in fact be engaging in. End quote. To translate that, those who are trying to eliminate unpredictability from human life or deny it are trying to play God. And he talks a little bit about that later with totalitarianism in the full sense and whether or not that's possible. The third source of systematic unpredictability in, in human affairs is an attack on game theory, which I personally find game theory very interesting, but he has a good little takedown of it here. And he argues that attempting to formalize the decision trees, logic, probability of, of different actions and actor types will never have enough information and in different circumstances becomes infinitely regressive because if you take the logical conclusion that both players are rational and trying to guess what the other players are, then both are, are going to do, then both players are trying to be unpredictable and doing well. If you know that I know that we know that you know that we know that I know, what do you do? Ultimately, it just kind of goes down to the end. And the only way to get around that is with is by designating actor types, at which point you're artificially constraining decisions, and it's just a whole mess. And he doesn't buy the whole project. And he makes the interesting observation that were life to play out in a game theory scenario, success would be defined by misinforming everyone and thus being unpredictable, including outside observers. In other words, say you're an outside observer trying to predict what a, a conflict between China and Russia, what the outcome would be. You would try to create predictions, but the player that would win would be the one that you were wrong about. In other words, if you guessed right, that player would lose. Or the player that you had most accurately depicted in your prediction would be the one that would lose because the one that would win would be the one that would be unpredictable in the end. And in addition to that simple fact, he also points out that life is complicated. Quote, not one game is being played, but several. And if the game metaphor may be stretched further, the problem about real life is that moving one's knight to, to queen b3 may always be replied to with a lob across the net. In addition, logic games that attempt to play out different scenarios according to different factors and parameters and conditions, such as, let's say, the factors in, and conditions around the Battle of Gettysburg, don't actually work. And you can't use a game like that to predict even post hoc for example, General Lee's behavior or show that he could have won given different circumstances. And the reason that, quote, for Lee did not and could not know that it was the Battle of Gettysburg, an episode on which a determinate shape was conferred only retrospectively by its outcome, which was about to be fought. Failure to realize this affects the predictive power of many computer simulations which seek to transfer analysis of past determinate situations to the prediction of future indeterminate ones, end quote. Yeah, Lee Lee may have thought that he was at Battle of Gettysburg, but he was actually besieging Washington, and boy, was that hard to explain to him. <laughs> yeah, the at that point in time, there was no Battle of Gettysburg as a situation to play out in a decision tree with probabilities and different possible actions, and Lee was just there in time, and it was only post-event that it was designated as a observation and, and an instance of which a game could be played. And it's little things like that that are just overlooked by social science in general, and that contribute to its failure to have actual expertise. 
the, the fourth systematic uncertainty that the social sciences have to contend with is that, is that of pure contingency. McIntyre says, quote, Trivial contingencies can powerfully influence the outcome of great events, examples being the length of Cleopatra's nose, which made Mark Antony fall in love with her, which made him oppose Octavian, which made the Battle of Actium happen and him lose, and then Augustus is emperor, who makes Rome great, etc. Or Napoleon's cold at Waterloo, which makes him be late to such and such a place, and this second-in-command goes out or trips over a bucket or whatever. And just all these things that are inherently unpredictable and random, but yet, if you trace out the pattern have huge effects down the line. So a lot of the social sciences, quote unquote, ability to predict and deal with events is them playing games with us and retroactively describing things in ways that make them appear to have predictive power when in fact, they basically are only practicing history and explicating things that have already happened. I want to take a brief digression to just mention one other person who has spoken about much of what McIntyre is getting at with problems with the social sciences in general. And that is uh, Nicholas Nassim Taleb. And he has what he calls black swan events. And it's these events that are core to shaping the modern world and modern events that McIntyre is getting at that the social sciences simply does not have the capacity to deal with, yet pretends like they do. And these black swan events have three major characteristics. The first is that the event is unpredictable for one of the four reasons, for example, that McIntyre has brought up. Uh, Second, it has a major effect. And third, what always happens after these events, such as the 2008 crisis, uh, oil embargoes, etc., is that post-event people rationalize that they could have predicted the event given a better simulation. If they had only just thought of that one other factor, then they could have predicted it. But this is simply not true, and it's self-deception to think so. You don't know what you don't know. Uh, my One of my profs in a methodologies class for social science said that there are known knowns, there are known unknowns, and there are unknown unknowns. The known knowns are the threats that you know that you know. The known unknowns are threats that you know that exist, but you don't know anything about them. And then there's the third category that you literally can't do anything about and that will be unpredictable in the end. All you can do is try and be resilient when they come around, and those are unknown unknowns. In other words, they're literally outside your scope of knowledge. And we have, as we've seen in the past hundred years, so many new scopes, radical concepts that have been innovated that we had no idea were coming. And thus the claim of social science to have a predictive power in order to get around these things and the fact that they'll be shaping the, that they have shaped the world and that they will continue to shape the world is pure arrogance and myopia. And so he says, quote, thus Machiavelli's Fortuna, unpredictability, cannot be eliminated, and so error in social prediction should not be treated as random, but should be studied systematically. And that's the crux of chapter eight. Uh, he takes a little bit of time to demur and say that he's not creating a law, that things are unpredictable, that there's no way around this, uh, but there is no way around these problems, at least as far as he can tell, and that most attempts to just sort of brush these off or say that social science is, oh, much more humble, sort of the argument I was making in the last uh, episode, are dishonest for the large part because whatever claims to modesty some social scientists make, others claim much more radical much more radical expertise and power. And so in McIntyre's overall project, if this is all true, if this attempt of social sciences to predict things is in fact a failure, then the expertise claimed by bureaucrats is illegitimate. And thus the best bureaucrat is not actually the best and most qualified expert, but instead merely the best actor. Bureaucrat being best actor. So in essence, the the best actor, the best bureaucrat is the one that is kind of convincing everyone to take part in the show and to kind of encouraging them to put their faith in this bureaucratic structure. Yeah. Is that a is that a correct way of looking at that? Yep. Yeah, it, it's an interesting thing. McIntyre does uh, sketch out several times that, getting back to Taleb, uh, the idea that unpredictability does not entail uh, unexplicability. So when you look back, the the common saying hindsight is twenty twenty, and McIntyre fully affirms that. Says yes, looking back, we can give in excruciating detail why we lost the Vietnam War, or why the two thousand seven two thousand eight housing crisis happened, or what have you. But before then, you can't predict things. Life is just too chaotic. And I think to an extent, he he's touching a bit on. Uh, chaos theory without maybe knowing about it. I'm kind of surprised he doesn't uh, discuss this further, but the idea that maybe if you knew every single variable, every single, you know, tiny microscopic thing, maybe you could start predicting things, but it is impossible to know that. And therefore any slight change in the, in the system 
will have a ripple effect throughout you know the entire the entire universe the the butterfly effect as it were um, yeah it's and, a if a butterfly flaps its wing in brazil then chris cuomo in new york will get a cold that's what it is uh well the funny thing is so that's that's the more commonly known one the butterfly flex uh, butterfly flaps its wings in some place of the world a tornado will happen in another or a hurricane will happen in another the original one was from a uh, a science fiction story where people would go back the, the the there was some technology invented such that people could go back in time and it was used as a tourism industry to send people back in time to go big game hunting when dinosaurs roamed the earth and what the people using this technology would do is they would find a dinosaur that was about to die and send people back on earth they would have or back in time they would have a very specific path that they could walk, uh, such that it wouldn't send any ripple effects. It wouldn't send any ripple effects, uh, you know, throughout uh, throughout history. They would shoot the dinosaur that was, you know, seconds away from dying or what have you. They would, you know, bag their game and everything would be fine. And the story goes that uh, some people went back in time. One of them stepped just a little off the uh, the path and crushed a butterfly. And when they when they came back in time, they found that Hitler had won World War II. Ah, so I, I forget what short story that's from, but that was the the first butterfly effect um, uh, kind of myth. That's some great trivia, actually. Yeah, I did my senior thesis on chaos theory, and that was what I used to introduce it. Of course you did. <laughs> no, of course I did. <laughs> to sort of pick up from where we left off at the last podcast, my argument that I was making was essentially for the humble social scientist who you know wants to make changes at the margins, who doesn't claim massive predictive power. And McIntyre basically addresses me directly in this chapter where he's talking about, you know, there are these people who do make this claim for humble social science and for limited predictive ability and, you know, limited small level rigorously tested practical application as close to natural science as as you can get. But he views the attempt to make that argument as essentially disingenuous, that what you end up doing when you are arguing for those positions is you really it's uh it's distracting from the central point it's that there's this giant sociological edifice that's based on this false concept and here's me over in the corner trying to distract you from it by saying oh no well actually i just want to do a couple little regressions and help people get their medicine quicker and it's like okay yes good for you but also look at this giant monstrosity that we've created that's totally unjustified. And in your defense of the social sciences, in, in your humility, you have just enabled a monstrosity that is sucking up the very life essence of our society. You should be wow. ashamed. I am part of the problem. Mm-hmm. Exactly. That's yep. exactly what McIntyre has said. <laughs> his his uh, his hand just kind of reached out of the book as I was reading it, and kind of like the, the Sasuke meme just started choking me. It's like, you are the problem. Exactly. <laughs> I, I was going to ask you, so as someone who is more math inclined, like I do enjoy the social sciences, um, but I am I am not a math person. In your sort of look at chaos theory in particular, but also mathematics and modeling in general, what do you make of McIntyre's claim here in terms of uncertainty? Because I could see how, well, sorry, I'll yeah, just go. So there, there are a few things he's playing with. First, he, he does make the even stronger claim at, at one point, I forget exactly where, but he, in essence, I think it's with the the game theory where you have two purely rational agents that are trying to predict each other, but to predict each other, they're trying to predict what the other will be predicting from them and so on and so forth. And it kind of gets to infinite regression. It seems that he's in that case, trying to argue that not only is it impossible to get the starting variables of a system, but it is impossible even with all the perfect starting variables in the system it is impossible to make predictive power because both purely rational agents will never be able to make a decision because there is inherently something they don't know. So that's not chaos theory. That is just, he's just straight up saying it's impossible. Chaos theory, despite what it sounds like, if a system is chaotic, it is still determined. There is still a guaranteed outcome. One of the uh, one of the simplest um, system, chaotic systems is a uh, three pronged pen- pendulum, or a um, sorry, not three pronged pendulum, a, a jointed pendulum. So you know how most pendul- pendulums they start, uh, you know, they they have one axle and they just go back and forth like a like a clock. Mm-hmm. If you add a joint between the axle or the um, axis, sorry, between the axis and the end, such that the end can fully swing around in like a 360 motion, in essence, you have two axes now, the system mm-hmm. becomes chaotic. It's actually really fun to watch if you ever get a chance to YouTube this. 
uh, look that up. And any sort of tiny difference, it sends a ripple effect through everything. It is, it is literally impossible to predict it, not because it is inherently inexplicable, much like McIntyre was saying, and not because there's any sort of magic or voodoo. It's because the initial starting conditions make such an insanely uh, big impact on they, they make such a big impact on the the future on the, on its path. So if you were just you know a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of an inch different than you were the previous time, maybe the system would follow your predictions for maybe a few milliseconds. But after that, it would just spiral out of control. I, I forget what the the exponent is called. I want to say it's a Lorentz exponent. But in essence, it, it shows how susceptible your system is to changes in initial conditions. Once those uh, changes kind of permeate throughout the system, how many steps will it take for it to go completely off um, off predictions? So if I throw a baseball at you, if even if I'm like off by maybe an inch or two, you can still generally know within a reasonable error bar where it's going to land. But if it's a chaotic system, if I throw a baseball at you and it's like I'm just a, a centimeter off, you will never be able to predict um, unless you have, even if you have the most insanely good initial starting conditions, if you're off even by a little, give it a few inches and it's just going to, it's just going to be who knows where. So that that's the basis of chaos theory. It's not that it's not determined, it's just impossible to predict. And that's what McIntyre seems to be toying with here is that there are just too many variables in a society that the the inability for us to know what's even going on in the rational agents makes or rational and irrational agents makes not only the starting variables un- unknowable or difficult to predict but it makes them in in themselves unknowable and if you don't even know the starting variables in a chaotic system oh you're screwed you'll never be able to predict it and so it seems well, that I would the, even say I would say you're you're even slightly playing into the social scientist game here because they because in response to that I'm a you know I'm rootin' tootin' social scientist uh, Joey Joey regression over here um, that's my name uh, over here and I say okay well hey, no. so here's the thing the more variables that I can get into my supercomputer simulator here the better I will be able to predict things so I may not be able to predict everything right now but if you give me fifteen million dollars every year for the next 10 years, I will create a bigger and better quantum computer that will predict all of the different possible variables that exist and be able to get a better and better picture of human behavior and get the policies that you want. What's McIntyre's uh-huh. response? But but Joey, uh, Joey uh, regression has played into the chaos statistician's hands, in fact. So one of the, the textbook I used, I forget what it was called, I think like something chaos and nonlinear dynamics or something like that actually went into this and said, let's say you hired 50 grad students and you got a research grant of millions and millions of dollars and you were able to, and this is in the physical sciences, um, and you were able to get your error bar from 0.0000001 to 0.0 like 15 O's one. So like a serious increase in accuracy to the point where it is impossible for the human mind to even conceptualize an error bar that low. Even then, within I forget how much it is, it, it's exponential though. So your your error bar is going to each step of the system. So each time the system makes a change and calculates the next uh, the next step in the series, each time that error is going to be exponentially larger. So maybe so to this to Joy regression, I'll say, oh yeah, sure, good job. You've gone from being able to predict three seconds in the future to being able pr- to predict five seconds in the future. And if you are able to put in even more money into it and to, to the point where you are able to just get absurdly to like to the nano, nano, nanometer, congratulations, you just bought yourself another five seconds of accuracy to the point where literally it's impossible. Um, just and mathematically speaking, it is impossible unless you know the exact where you have no error bar at all whatsoever, which I think McIntyre and I would contend most social scientists who are being reasonable will acknowledge that there is going to be some sort of error bar in the starting conditions. And this is for physical sciences that you're talking about. Joey regression is trying to deal with human beings that may or may not have dual essences of physical and spiritual and Mm -hmm. or have uh, non-reductive physical elements in their brain in which either we have non-reductive qualia and or what do you call it? and or emergent qualities that result in consciousness of all of which are entirely unpredictable. And it's not like you can brain scan everyone either. And so, so what you're (laughs) saying yet, (laughs) so what you're saying is if we can't even do this with basic physical sciences in a chaotic system, how much more so is human behavior unpredictable? And the implication of that is what McIntyre is getting at, which is that all of the expertise 
and you could even say is being played out in political systems with fake news, with people being distrustful of the State Department, of the Treasury, of every instrument of government and society being able to predict and control things for favorable outcomes, is that they can't do it. And the whole enterprise has been an elaborate theater that ultimately has worked to many people's detriment. Yes. So I, McIntyre brought up a lot of really good points with kind of his, his various um, ideas around you know, people not being entirely rational, people not being entirely predictable, uh, the the game theory things that I, I love the line of, you know, you may move your knight to, you know, E5 or whatever it is, but the your opponent will respond by lobbing a volleyball over in that. And I think with that, like that is a strong case for if things are that unpredictable and things are that complicated and the system is indeed chaotic, which I would struggle to find anyone who would not agree that social the society because after all we do live in a society damn we do though mm-hmm, exactly and uh for listeners who uh who are a little bit curious i i or who don't quite believe me as far as the predictability thing is concerned i would highly recommend looking up something like the three body problem or something like that that would kind of go and break down uh, the situation a little bit more because i in also for the record uh the physical sciences not all systems are chaotic uh there are only you know there are there are a few systems that are very chaotic, and then there are some that, even though they're more complicated, aren't necessarily chaotic. Well, that was too much math for me in one day. Uh, never enough. To, there's never enough math. There's never too much math. The extent of my math knowledge is that I can run a regression in Excel, and all I know is I've created truth. That's what I've said. <laughs> That's what I will say. That That is actually what it means, is when you run a regression in Excel, you have created truth although actually in your defense uh regressions and whatnot that that area was always one of my biggest struggles i the the idea that i can make something that is like statistically right or like going to be 86 percent right that just bugs me i want to be either 100 percent right or i i I want to avoid that entirely statistics was my at least favorite class my uh my statistics professor i think at one point when i when i got a, a homework assignment back kind of loudly announced to the class, uh, senioritis, huh? And to an extent she was right, and to an extent it was, no, <laughs> legitimately bad, bad at statistics. Oh, perfect. Well, so I think this leaves us at the point where we must be distrustful of all society and its edifices, and I don't know where to go. But based on the title of the next chapter, I think we can either choose Nietzsche or Aristotle. And I guess we'll see which one we like more. McIntyre has done a very good job. I, I appreciated this more and more that he went with a very practical approach of this is the sort of character that our society has received from the concept of emotivism. And I will now prove why, even on a practical level, this does not work. And therefore, it leaves us kind of free to explore, well, what other options do we have? And it sounds like it will be either Nietzsche or Aristotle. And Five Bucks says uh, he's going to go with Aristotle. I mean, I think that there's a third way, which is to become a uh, purely ironic um, poster in which you see the problem and then just post memes about it and never actually resolve the dilemma in your head. And you can, <laughs> you know, you can both be a member of, you know, nihilism meme pages and Aristotelian meme pages. There's no contradiction here. It's all posting. Um, and I think that that irony um, will both melt your brain, but also make you stronger in the end. I don't know. Yeah, I, irony is uh, it's the uh, zeitgeist of our generation. Um, it is the way that we can go about. Uh, I, I think it's it's possibly our generation's response to kind of understanding that a lot of this is absurd, and so it is a productive barrier that we put up to kind of try to stop this absurdity from happening. Do you need an exorcist, Stephen? Because I'm pretty sure you were just channeling David Foster Wallace. I, I really probably do. I just, I like that guy so much. He's so cool. Well, speaking of things being cool, uh, did you find a cool article this week? I did find a cool article this week. And uh, as much as it may shock our viewers, it's not David Foster Wallace. It's instead my other main man, Walker Percy. And in this one, it is one that I have shared with uh, Brevin before. It is an article called Bourbon Meat, in which Walker Percy uh, goes into a, a, a brief rant on uh, the aesthetics of bourbon drink. And uh, he opens up the article with him firmly stating that he is not a connoisseur of bourbon, that most bourbons taste roughly the same to him, and that 99% of bourbon drinkers know more about bourbon than he does, uh, to quote him. 
And he's, he's more concerned with what happens when you drink bourbon in particular situations and particular ways and the, the mood that it brings up and the memories that it brings up and the different effects it can bring, not just of obviously getting slightly drunk or what have you, but what it can make you associate uh, yourselves with. Um, he compares uh, two types of uh, aesthetics two or, two or two types of aesthetes that approach bourbon in their different ways. Quote, two exemplars of the two aesthetics come to mind. Imagine Clifton Webb, scarf at throat, sitting at Cap Tibis on a perfect day, the little wavelets of Mediterranean sparkling in the sunlight, and he is savoring a 1959 Mouton Rothschild. Then imagine William Faulkner, having finished Absalom, Absalom, drained, written out, pissed off, feeling himself over the edge and out of it, nowhere, but he has to go somewhere, his favorite hunting place in the Delta wilderness of the Big Sunflower River, and still feeling, and still feeling bad with his hunting cronies and maybe even a little phony, which he was, what with him trying to pretend that he was one of them, a farmer hunkered down in the cold and rain after the hunt, after honorable passing up the nose and seeing no bucks, shivering and snot nose, taking out a flat, flat pint of any bourbon at all and flat foots about a third of it. He shivers again, but not from the cold. And he, he uses these two ideas. He, the former, he calls the aesthetics of damnation. This idea that you are enjoying bourbon because you have cultivated a particular palate, but other than that, it's in a vacuum versus Faulkner, who is who is absorbing the bourbon, not for the taste, but more for the feeling of it. Um, and again, not the feeling of alcohol hitting your, your, your brain, but rather the context it brings up. And I've, I've been surprised because I remember reading it and um, at the very end, he includes a, a tiny little recipe uh, for one of his mint juleps called uh, Cudden Walker's Uncle Will's Favorite Mint Julep Receipt. Uh, I remember reading this article and I just started making these uh, at particular moments, generally special occasions. Uh, first, kind of ironically, just out of a, or maybe not ironically, just but kind of out of a, a salute to Walker Percy, but kind of. As I did, I realized that he was absolutely right, that in so drinking these recipes, they became part of me, um, that all of a sudden I have a whole host of memories connected to this particular drink that when I, you know, when I drink it with friends or outside on a, a warm summer day, summer day while reading with friends or what have you, and it becomes more than a drink, it becomes more than the effect of alcohol hitting my mind, it becomes... In a in a strange sort of way, it just becomes an entire experience, uh, a set of memories. Yeah, like when we had to go steal all the ice from your parents' house so that we could make them. <laughs> Precisely, yes. When uh, when I gathered up all the all the um, various uh, pieces of the recipe, only to find out that we didn't have any ice, and we had to go back to my parents, who do not entirely approve of drinking, to beg ice from them. Uh, what a time, what a time. But I mean, and it is so these sort of things that that compose these very good memories that now whenever I drink a Cotton Walker's Uncle Will's favorite mint julep receipt, I will remember this. And I think that's a very beautiful way one can go about the enterprise of drinking or whatever, you know, whatever tradition you want to bring up. And I think that that's an important thing to remember. Uh, the lesson is uh, make meaning, drink bourbon. Precisely, make meaning drink bourbon. Ooh, that that needs to that needs to get written on a plaque somewhere. I might make this into the uh, the title card for this podcast. Maybe I can see if uh, I can get Inspirabot to randomly generate that. That would be truly fortuitous. That would be magic, right there, and entirely unpredictable. And mm, uh, it, unpredictable, and not inexplicable. Indeed. Not inexplicable, but unpredictable. Uh, but if I could do that, I'm sure it would affect me emotionally, uh, much like emotions affect uh, grad school students in my article of the week, which is The Emotional Toll of Graduate School, which appeared on the Scientific American blog. This is of some concern to me as someone who to pursue grad school here in the next few years, and the article talks about grad students who are three times more likely to experience mental health disorders and depression than the average American. And, quote, the study, which surveyed over 500 economic students at eight universities, also concluded that one in 10 students experienced suicidal thoughts over a two-week period, end quote. And the author does a little bit of sociological, let's say, analysis of this, making a, a distinction between so-called professional schools, you can think medicine or law here, and doctoral programs and other programs that don't necessarily translate directly into a career. 
And the author notes that 40% of doctoral students don't have a job lined up at the time of their graduation, notes that they're underpaid relative to the value that they create for their professors and universities in terms of research grants, etc. They're overworked. They work over 40 hours a week on average. And so the question is, why do 100,000 students every year go for this? Why are they being overworked, underpaid, chronically depressed, etc.? And the author offers several potential categories, such as them being simply passionate about the research, to people who do it just because it seems like the next step in the most uncritical fashion, to people who see it as progress into adulthood, to people who like the structure of university over the non-structure of daily life, which I can confirm is rough. And though this structure does deteriorate as funding dries up, as graduation gets pushed back constantly, and the conclusion is just that these students are depressed. And why is that the case? What is broken in the system that is causing this to be yet people to swan dive into this cesspool of higher education and doctoral training? Um, And I had several thoughts on this that I just thought were productive, given the the article and the study, which I did take a look at um, in particular. Uh, the study was based on a uh, Harvard survey. And I think economics as a choice is an interesting subgroup. I would actually love to see rates of depression, suicidal thoughts, etc., compared between different disciplines. Considering that the survey's authors and the blog posts authors are making a distinction between professional studies such as medicine and law, I'm surprised that they would include for or, or they would make the assumption that things like econ and STEM and English all belong in the same categories when they're kind when I would think that they're categorically in different realms. I mean, you could say social sciences, engineering is much more up, is is more akin to law than it is to English, for example. Um, so I, I think there's definitely room to work with here. There's also the noting the elite universities, so not necessarily a representative subset of the population, uh, despite what you know uh, admissions people say. Second, the study does note that loneliness is a particular problem and that the reported rates of loneliness as a serious issue exceeds that of retired single people. So that's pretty bad. And it also ties back to two episodes ago in Sam talking about loneliness. Three, what does a PhD econ student actually look, look like? Because we're comparing that against an average American. And I don't know what an average American is. It's obviously not, you know, 26-year-old doctoral student. So, I, so I'd like to see comparisons against the average in that age group. I'd like to see some controls to see if the mental health illness is better described as a product of the stress of grad school environment, or if there's a self-selection process by which all of the people more susceptible to developing mental disorders tend to put themselves into doctoral programs, uh, myself included, as I'm about to hopefully embark on that here in the next couple of years. You know, is there a self-selection process going on? Or is it something more like a disconnect between the expectations of elite education, which would go well with people like Brian Kaplan, of George Mason, who argues that education is vastly overvalued in terms of what it actually produces and that it's more social signaling and not knowledge or value creation. Anyway, so I found this short blog post really interesting food for thought in just that there's it raises so many more questions than it answers. And anyone who uncritically shares this or posts about this is missing out on the real fun of trying to discern what it's actually about, which is important for me personally as I look towards my future. But Certainly. I mean, and while I, I don't, uh, obviously not being trained in uh, the social sciences and whatnot, <laughs> I, I don't claim to, to know much about uh, the, the methodologies of studying and whatnot, though the, uh, the etymology of uh, passion, of uh, you know, going into something that you're passionate about, I find it's a very interesting word choice used there uh, because passion uh, means to suffer for, or at least used to. And so if you go into grad school for something that you truly are passionate about, um, that means that you are willing to suffer um, even perhaps the depressions or uh, you know nastiness of uh, grad school that you may endure because you are willing to suffer for something that you are this um, this well passionate about. So there's I, I think honestly like if if the author of this means it when they say like that that some people really are passionate enough for it those people would probably be the more resilient against some of the more depressing. Um, uh, elements of grad school. Yeah. Well, anyway, I uh, thought that was a interesting thing to think about and, you know, kind of got ranty on the uh, 
lack of details in the blog post and even in the study itself. Uh, but speaking of getting ranty, you know, getting mad at things, uh, Stephen, do you do you have a rant this week? I actually do, although this one is actually quite positive. Uh, so um, I I have a Nintendo Switch and I have uh, on it Super Smash Brothers. And this this week, Nintendo recently came out with their first DLC for Super Smash Brothers, which was a character uh, Piranha Plant or Piranha Petey. And I, I, I am generally fairly skeptical of the whole DLC paradigm. Generally, it's video game companies that have realized that they can milk video games as much as they can for as much as they're worth, and just keep players constantly having to buy new things. But with this one. Uh, Nintendo actually made it free. Uh, so first of all, that was a pretty nice thing. Although they only made it free for two days. Uh, they sent everyone alerts to the fact that it was going to be free two days, but you had to get it at that moment, which I honestly thought was a little bit shady. So I wish they would do better with that. But, you know, the, this particular character, it was a very well done character. It's not just a reskin. It's not just, you know, some, some other character that's been disguised as someone else or what have you. It was a legitimately very good addition. And so... I want to say uh, huzzah for Nintendo actually doing a DLC that is you know, worthwhile and also ostensibly not just a, a cheap way of trying to uh, gain money. So well done to that. Can we have more video games? Smash Bros. is great. I wish I had a Switch because I would, oh, uh, it, it I would be so on that too much. It. Oh, yeah, you would be. It's, it's, it's such a good time. What about you? What, did, what are you wanting to rant about this, uh, this week, bro? Yeah, well, <clears throat> 58 years ago. In 1961, Webster's third new international dictionary was published. It it contained half a million entries, over 2,700 pages, nearly outpacing the bookbinding capabilities of its time. Upon release, it sparked instant controversy and called into question the very purpose of dictionaries. And what is the purpose of dictionaries? There are two major philosophic possibilities. On the one hand, it may be prescriptive and engage in helpful discrimination, treating new words and fads with caution, labeling some words as correct, others incorrect, colloquial, or slang. On the other hand, a dictionary may be descriptive and bow to the twin linguistic pillars of the fluidity of language and correctness is defined by usage camps. This second approach claims that dictionaries should be authoritative, but not authoritarian. That label, that labels such as correct or incorrect or colloquial are unjust modifiers and additions unnecessary to modern speech. Webster's third took this second descriptive path, diverging from the dictionaries before it. And indeed, its philosophy seems almost instinctive in our modern society, so skeptical of authority and even tradition. However, the descriptive account of dictionaries has one central flaw that it cannot overcome. The lexicographer cannot abrogate his or her authority. The dictionary is a particular type of object that captures a snapshot of language in time. Thus, the attempt to capture the, quote, fluidity of language is self-contradictory and defeating. Indeed, the misguided efforts to do so may artificially preserve in print fads and ephemeral fancies past their expiry date. One only needs to look at Webster's codification of words like Nexi, Hepster, and Passel to see that attempts to do so are futile. Prescription is innate to the dictionary's form and task. It preserves a core of language that, while not stagnant, has staying power and can act as a middle ground for a language as divergent as English. Discrimination can simply mean discernment and choice, and with words, we would be wise to always exercise it. A review of the dictionary that is insightful and argues well for prescriptivism. That that sounds honestly like uh, quite a good read. One, one of my uh, favorite articles uh, by uh, my main man, David Foster Wallace, uh, actually discusses a very similar thing. He was arguing very passionately for um, for prescriptivist grammar. So that's uh, that's awesome. <laughs> always do. There's always a shout out somewhere or other. I was actually in an English class, history of uh, English class. And we had to write an essay comparing one essay that was for Webster's three and one that was arguing against it on the descriptive versus prescriptive grounds. And out of the whole class of 30 people, I was the only person who wrote that Webster's three should have been prescriptive and that descriptive is a fatal deviation from the function of a dictionary. So I have not a whole lot of confidence in our generation. And you know, like the wonderful thing about the internet is things like modern dictionary 
are there to preserve and catalog in real time terms that are not going to last. Like half the things that are on Urban Dictionary are not in use anymore and should never be in any kind of print dictionary because they never make it to the mainstream. Or even if they do, they only are there for a short amount of time. And the dictionary inherently instills in things a bit of prestige, a bit of normalcy, and a bit of common usage. It's meant to be a thing that allows us to interact with other people on common ground. And those that want to make it descriptive are destroying that and they have bad opinions and they should feel bad <laughs> so it sounds like you are okay with some amount of descriptivism as long as it's not uh given the height of uh the prestige of a dictionary no, no th- yeah this isn't i am 100 percent not saying that words that appear and are developed should not be given definitions or anything like that i mean it is obvious that language is fluid and that language is always evolving and creating new forms and new iterations The question is, what is the form and function of a dictionary in particular, which is a particular instance of the catalog of language? And it's... Ah, so what the talos of a dictionary is. What the talos of a dictionary is, exactly. What is the end purpose of a dictionary? What is it to be a good dictionary? Well, and this even falls into the, the category of things that have been emptied of meaning to follow from Walker Percy here. The modern instances that lack any meaning in and of themselves and seek to parasitically cannibalize things that have meaning, such as the dictionary, to push whatever agenda they're on about at any given time, that's what they do. They take things that have an an inherent telos and authority and try and fill that space with their own manifestations in order to steal the remnants of the authority that was there in order to grant themselves legitimacy because they can't do it on their own. Deconstructionism is a parasite. Damn. Also humans. Humans are parasites. Behave parasite, as I think one of our uh, (laughs) our pictures says. Behave parasitic, yes. Oh, behave parasitic. There we go. There we go. All right. Well, um, I think that's probably good. We don't have to subject people to any more of this. I'm getting ramped up up here, and I... I already got into an argument at work about descriptivism versus prescriptivism. And one of my coworkers was like, wow, Brevin, you're getting really heated about this. I'm like, oh, I know, stop it. Um, <laughs> no, this is a good thing to be heated over. It's it's on, like, while it at first sounds like kind of a, a rather mundane and kind of boring thing, no, like it's an important, it's a, an important, almost political um, in the uh, actual sense of the word, uh, like the polis. gathering of people or whatever, the polis, like, is it an important political point that I think not enough people give uh, enough attention to? All right. Well, as we uh, go out here into our world from which we now know is deprived of both telos and expertise, and instead is the elaborate play acting of bureaucratic managers that seek to dominate our lives with their will to power and desire to manipulate us to no effective ends, but instead merely to aggrandize themselves and acquire more and more influence to shape the world or not shape the world as they will. Uh, Stephen, do you have a quote that might give us some bit of hope? Uh, and, and especially given that our next chapter is from uh, or is about the decision between Aristotle and Nietzsche, I thought it uh, only appropriate to quote from Socrates uh, speaking to Ismamakis, uh on virtue. For tomorrow is a good day for embarking on a life of virtue. Where and where he was discussing it, it was in essence that every day, like every every time you wake up, it is a good day to to begin uh, becoming a better person and to, uh, to striving for virtue. So I think that's something we can take away with us this week. Um, yes, that's fantastic. Uh, so uh, for everyone here at the Problem With Reading podcast, uh, I'm Brevin. And I'm Steven. And we will see you next time. Sayonara. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.